When Joey was first brought to me, I didn't really understand what his parents and doctor wanted. At the time, I worked at a small startup that was experimenting with new techniques in MEG, which is a sort of real-time MRI that allows medical technicians to scan a patient's ongoing brain patterns. More specifically, for the previous two years, my company has been working on visual reconstruction. Our algorithms could build a black and white image of what a subject was processing in their visual cortex. In short, if you imagined a sight, we could see it with you. I immediately disliked Mrs. Campbell. I had already gotten several pushy emails from her, so by the time she and Joey showed up in my office unannounced, I would already knew exactly who I was talking to. Her power suit, uptight sitting position, and severe expression only added to her edge. Look, I've already had this conversation 87 times before, she stated, eyeing me as I moved to sit behind my desk. You'll go on about how this isn't your specialty, or Joey's case isn't appropriate for the technology, or a dozen other excuses. I get it. It's not in your job description. Lifting a hand sheepishly at having been so expertly called out, I went to speak, but she cut me off. I'll have you know that I literally learned neuroscience to better pursue the truth of my son's condition. Every other doctor in the tri-state area has come up short. This is my lead. I know enough to make an educated guess. Your technology will uncover something about Joey's problem. She let silence hang over my office. Next to her, Joey sat with his face buried in a thick book. He was a small and gangly, as I expected an ill six-year-old boy to be, but Descartes' discourse on the method seemed to be about out of his range. My immediate suspicion was that the mother herself might be driving some of her son's endless night terrors. I considered her words for a moment before asking, You learned neuroscience. She was not amused. Yes. Are you a doctor? No. Then where did you find the time? The slightest hint of a proud smile curled up the side of her lip. I'm extremely motivated. There was no arguing that. Since we did need a younger test subject to round out the results, something I'm sure she was aware of, I begrudgingly acquiesced and hurried her out of my office so that I could speak to her son alone. You reading Descartes? That's pretty heavy stuff for a boy your age. He looked up with sharp, bespectacled eyes, surrounded by halos of exhaustion. There's so little time. Subtly put off by his odd answer and perceptive gaze, I shrugged away my apprehension. Alright then, let's begin. I led him to the next room and explained that our process would require ongoing meetings and tests, since every brain and all the patterns within were unique to each person. The biofeedback mechanisms and tests would take time to adapt algorithms. Never mind, he was reading his book again. (laughs) I couldn't help but smile. At his age, I had escaped into books the same way. His overbearing mother likely didn't help his desire to be present in the moment either. The first tests were simple enough. 
I hooked him to a less intensive helmet-only version of our machine and had him run through our anchoring images. A tree, a kite, a basketball, and a variety of other pictures with basic shapes and strong recognition quotients. The written portion and medical history had already been submitted by his mother. Done for the day, I walked him out. Our computers will process our recordings of your brain for a few days, and then we'll be able to do more next week. He hesitated before going back into the lobby. You're not like the other doctors. I smiled. I'm not? No. You're actually here. Uh, interesting praise. Medical professionals were certainly encouraged to develop emotional distance, but I was not that kind of doctor. Thanks, Joey. He grinned and nodded hard enough for his hair to flop, and then ran out into the lobby, his book still clutched in his hands. At one appointment a week, it took about three months to truly narrow in on an accurate brain map. The interesting thing about working with such a young subject was that his brain was more malleable and changing far more rapidly than any of our adult subjects. Other technicians sometimes worked with him, but I made sure to stick with his case and keep an eye on him. As we talked about philosophy, life, and his favorite superheroes among the Avengers, it began to hit home that this bookish little boy slept less than two hours a night. Racks with night terrors as he was, every week we wasted was another week of torture he didn't deserve. I was more than happy to move forward with looser confidence intervals than normal in our data. His brain was constantly changing anyway, I argued, not telling them my real reason for wanting to begin our investigation early. I was actually excited that first night we slid him into the two of the machine for a real imaging run, and I think that excitement transferred to his attitude. There was no more guesswork, pills, or therapy. After a never-ending series of failures and a lifetime of suffering a medical mystery that had defied all regimens and treatments, we were finally going to witness his night terrors directly. We would stand with him against his fears and see what he was seeing. He put down his book completely for the first time since I'd known him and slid into that imaging tube with a worried but hopeful expression. Thanks to all the prep work and our years of computer and medical research already implemented, it was now as simple as watching the video feed as our mainframe began, deciphering the ongoing changes in the magnetic fields of the neurons in his visual cortex. As the fuzzy black and white image grew more coherent, the feed took on the appearance of someone filming from inside of a sheer white tube. Joey, can you hear me? I asked. Yeah. I'm going to flash some simple indicators along the tube above you, alright? I won't be scared. Alright, here we go. The technicians and I watched the videos as the program patterns appeared as darker squares on the inside of the tube. At about a five-second delay for processing, the tremendous quantity of three-dimensional neural data in the machine was reading every millisecond. It looks good. Now, here comes the hard part, Joey. What do I do? Now you have to sleep. 
Are you tired? I can sleep anywhere, even here, he breathed. You want to know my secret? I looked in through the test chamber window at his feet, wondering. Sure, what? He said triumphantly. I'm always tired. Technicians and I shared an awkward laugh, and then we went about the business of waiting. He fell asleep rather quickly, and random scattered images filled our feed, but the real data would only come once he'd begun dreaming. I was reading a magazine when the first coherent images began to flicker to light. There was a slow moment of strange tension that all the men and women in the control room shared as the curious fuzzy blurs began as something privately recognizable and then sharpened into something unknown. What the hell had that been? For a second it felt as if I'd... Well, I can't even say for sure now. But the feed now showed a murky grayscale scene full of indeterminate fog and little wriggling black things. What are those? Someone asked as we all peered intently at the screen. Someone else wondered aloud. Is this even a dream? Looks like a view from a camera on the weather tower somewhere. It was a pertinent question. There was none of this mise-en-scene we had observed in other subjects' dreams. Here there were no identifiable landmarks, no shifting locations, and apparently no sense of self. Joey's dream was simply his own point of view floating somewhere foggy while scattered, unidentifiable bits of black motion moved about in strangely disgusting manners. I thought they were birds at first, purely by context, but my senses began linking the sight to that of a petri dish. Little black blobs wriggling in a foggy petri dish sky. What the hell were we seeing here? And more importantly, why was this source of so much stress for Joey that had always woke him up? Talking quietly in the control room, we each agreed that dreams like that would be rather peaceful if that was all that happened. Of course, that was not all that happened. Mrs. Campbell herself was out in the waiting room dozing, and I requested she come to my office immediately on threat of arrest. Our security guard and two technicians stood as witness while I turned my laptop around and showed her our recording. This is Joey's dream, I told her, barely covering my anger and disgust at what the video had apparently turned out to be. This is what wakes him up screaming multiple times at night, every night, Mrs. Campbell. I hate to ask you this. But do you submerge your son underwater in a vat of leeches? That's ridiculous, she spat furious. I'll get my lawyer immediately if you're going to accuse me of child abuse. I didn't work this hard his entire life to cause the problem myself, you son of a bitch. The guard coughed, and she sat back down and uncurled her fist. As unpleasant as it was, I had to probe deeper. Have you ever heard of Munchausen by proxy syndrome? She took a long breath in through her nose and then said flatly, That is not what this is. 
We all watched in silence for a few heartbeats as the horrible end of Joey's dream played out on screen. One of the distant, wriggling black blobs shot forward, growing quickly into massive, swimming, annelid worm that opened a horrible mouth ringed with teeth and attempted to swallow the point of view itself. The video cut back to his normal eyesight inside the tube just before, due to Joey himself waking up screaming in panic. Mrs. Campbell stared with a moment of true, vulnerable fear before quickly donning her mask of confidence again. That's what he dreams about. She sat a little taller. Then we've made progress. It's heartening to finally see what's going on in his head. As for your accusation, you don't look at his files closely enough. He's been having trouble sleeping since the day he was born. There is literally no way I could have caused this in him. Especially in those first few days. I wasn't even allowed to hold him because he was so weak due to an inability to sleep well. I shook my head. I saw that in the files, but I know the records have been faked. The human brain restructures itself around age two or three and erases everything that came before. I seriously doubt it's all possible this nightmare has reoccurred since before that time, let alone as far back as the first day of its birth. That would imply some sort of chemical or neurological poisoning. Noticing a certain subtle droop in his mother's shoulders, I turned one of the technicians with a horrible suspicion. Do we have Mrs. Campbell's medical records? We did. As part of a legal footnote for putting Joey in the program. I leafed through to six years ago, and there it was. You were on nootropics before and during your pregnancy. Cognitive enhancers. Untested on pregnant women and children. I studied her defiant expression. I bet you're still on them. You just learned neuroscience in your free time, did you? She finally spoke with vehemence. I am a single mother, you asshole. Have you tried monophenil yourself? It was the only way I could work hundred-hour work weeks between my job and raising Joey and coping with his illness. One of the technicians spoke up with a sour face. But you were on them before you even had him. That's enough, I said, raising a hand. All anger had drained from me, finding out that this was not intentional. It wouldn't help Joey to call the authorities into this. Now, we know another piece of the puzzle. Miss Campbell, I apologize for it, inappropriately putting you on the spot, but I hope you see we've learned something from it. She shoved away from our guard, but scaled down her aggressive stance. Next week, same time. How about tomorrow night? I couldn't stomach putting him through another week of waiting. The other technicians agreed to work overtime, and we came in on Saturday. Joey came in with Victor Frank's man's search of meaning under his arm, and I asked him, You're really into the philosophy, aren't you? Again, he said, There's so little time. He added more to the second answer because we were closer. Now that it knows about us. I frowned. What do you mean by that? He seemed confused by my question, but I didn't want to push him any further. 
He was, after all, still a permanently exhausted six-year-old boy. We set him up in the machine and proceeded to wait for his dreams to begin. Now that we knew the cause of all this was likely some sort of neurological poisoning during pregnancy, we spent the entire wait speculating and arguing, hammering out ideas. We came to the educated guess that some sort of traumatic memory had been permanently ingrained in his neural makeup thanks to the cognitive enhancing drug that had riddled his body throughout gestation. The womb! One of our female technicians shouted in the manner of a eureka. That's the cause of the fixed murky perspective. He's literally remembering being in the womb. I bet if we tried out colorization technology, we'd find that that murkiness is red. As his dream began again with that same perspective in that foggy void, we added our new colorization algorithms and the video sharpened. Now we could see that he was floating in some sort of nebulous red environment, which would have been expected from the dim light penetrating Mrs. Campbell's skin from outside. So our theory was coming together. But the obvious question had to be asked. Why the leeches? We threw out a couple of ideas, but our resident neuropsychologist could only guess. Maybe they're an addition or a change due to later fears. Perhaps leeches he saw on television. The original form of this memory is impossible to know for sure. Something scared him horribly when he was very young, and this is what remains to torture him. He hesitated. Maybe this happens to all babies, and we just forget it because of the reconstructing of the young brain two years in. They were good theories, but I was still worried about Joey himself. So, how do we fix it? Honestly? Maybe electroshock therapy. What? No. Come on. Someone else threw in a radical idea. Maybe show him the video and ask him what he thinks it is? I looked up and jumped back just as a giant leech-like creature swallowed the screen and Joey woke up screaming. Seeing the whole video as real might scare him even more, but it was worth a shot. With Mrs. Campbell and the other two technicians who Joey trusted in attendance, we sat him in a private room the next day, a Sunday. He laid his book carefully on the table and watched the video on my laptop with a pale face. That's it. That's my dream. His mother held his hand, but he didn't panic like his records said he had before in hypnotherapy and dream therapy sessions. It's real. He began breathing harder, but he seemed to retain control. I don't want to talk about it. They tried to make me talk about it before. I couldn't, I couldn't describe it. I knew that from his records, and I'd already had the idea to handle it. They asked you to describe it before, because they couldn't see it. Are you able to talk around it now that we can see it for ourselves? He fought back tears. I'll try. Alright, Joey. Do you have a sense of when this was? Just nod for yes or shake your head for no. He nodded. Good. Was it a long time ago? He nodded. And you were smaller than you are now. He nodded emphatically. 
Did something scare you at that time? He nodded weakly, his features draining to white. I don't like thinking about them. Almost as if to protect himself, he took his book and held it to his chest. Them? I pointed to the unmoving black blobs in the paused video. You mean these guys? Yeah. I looked to the others for confirmation before continuing with our plan now that the questions would get riskier. Are you aware that creatures like this really exist? And they're harmless? That got him paying attention. Really? I can show you some scientific information on them if you want to see. They're not nightmares. They're real tiny little things that can't harm you. Lowering his philosophy book to his lap, he took the new text I'd offered him and looked at the article for leeches. He began to smile and even laughed. Is this for real? They're that small? He looked at his hand and compared it to the life-size millimeters long picture of a worm. I must be huge now. I had no idea because there's no way to tell then and now. His mother rubbed his arm, not daring to hope. So you're... Not afraid of them anymore? He shook his head, flopping his hair about. No way! I'm going to sleep right now and stomp that stupid leech if he tries to eat me this time. I'm the one in charge, right? Yeah, I said, smiling uncontrollably. I looked to his mother. Let's get him to the chamber and see how he does. She nodded happily. I couldn't imagine what she was going through. Finally seeing some understanding and progress for her son's torment. We let her sit with him this time, hand on his ankle while he laid inside the machine. He was excited, but sleep came easily thanks to his permanent exhaustion. And we all waited expectantly for his dream to begin. This time, he finally had a sense of self, and we watched as imagined hands pattered out before his sight to move him along through the crimson liquid environment. Now that we had some parallax, we began getting a sense of his environment and it turned out to be a vast flowing tube rather than the small space we'd expected. The leech-like creatures still wriggled in the distance, but he eluded them by swimming away from his initial location, moving with the current, and he began passing floating little dots of flaring light colored red by the thick unknown liquid, and these, too, moved with the flow. Someone else was the first to ask, What the hell are we seeing? As the tube opened up into a mammoth pulsing cavern whose walls were fleshy and striated, I think it slowly began to dawn on all of us that our theory had been both horribly wrong and horribly right. This was a memory from a time many years before when Joey had been much smaller, but he had not had these experiences during pregnancy. I began to understand when we saw the first flaring point of floating light suddenly flash and form into the fading silhouette of an infant human before vanishing into a strange blur. This... It wasn't possible. This wasn't a gestation memory. Joey had been brought into existence filled with memory enhancers and the great barrier of brain restructuring that made all human babies forget had failed to work on him. This was pre-life. 
We stared in horrified awe as he swam through tube after tube, slowly revealing to us the nature of pre-life. He was alive. The tubes were arteries and the chambers strange hearts. Leech-like creatures ate the flares, and weird octopus-like entities ate the leeches, and strange propelled mouths ate them in turn, all winding a web of eating upon eating that seemed to host thousands of different types of organisms in every artery. Existence before birth was maddeningly full of life in every respect, so much so that bits of that desperate moving and writhing energy gathered into flaring points and became sentient in our own form of reality. Were these souls? Or were these simply the perspective I, which rode around in each of our minds, looking out from our eyes and hearing through our ears to experience the physical world and wonder at the meaning of it all? His philosophy books. What if... No. Wake him up. The others refused, and I backed away from the feed. They hadn't pieced together the grander horror out there known only to this boy. He was a living soul in the truest and most profound sense. Joey knew the pre-life form of existence so implicitly that he never bothered to confirm with other people that they didn't know. As he'd spent every waking moment of his life reading philosophy books because there's so little time now that it knows about us. I'm not ashamed to admit that I panicked. You might even call it a breakdown. I just happen to know what it is now. An unknowable entity so tremendous that it is a form of existence unto itself filled with energetic life to the point of bursting spontaneously into our very souls themselves. And I shudder for the future. I'm not afraid of it destroying us, no. Against a creature so cosmic, we would never see it coming, and never suffer a millisecond. I'm not even convinced that dealing death is something such a beast of life is capable of. No, I'm afraid of that other fate. The path where it has become aware of our child's souls escaping into another mode of existence through birth, the path where it puts a stop to that leak of its vitality. Women will still get pregnant, and babies will still be born because those are physical animal processes, but without a spark from pre-life existence. People will still get pregnant, and babies will still be born because those are physical animal processes, but without a spark from pre-life existence, what will be riding around in their heads? What will see the world? What will wonder at the meaning of it all? I shudder because I know, as a scientist, that vacuums of all sorts tend to be filled. Something will possess our babies and become their souls. It just won't be us. By Joey's subtle indication, it may already be happening. And we may already be outnumbered. After all, I'm not like other people in his life. I'm actually here. My wife had always been a sound sleeper. She never snored, talked in her sleep, nor was she particularly restless. Oftentimes, she'd wake up in the same position she passed out in, with barely a wrinkle in the sheets around her. When the singing in the middle of the night began, 
I was perplexed, to say the least. Not only was this late-night, early-morning karaoke completely out of tune and downright painful to listen to, even though I knew her to have quite the lovely singing voice, but it seemed to be some sort of gospel music. I don't mean to be offensive to any fans of the genre, but I knew for a fact that it was not Jen's cup of tea. She'd never been a particularly religious type, but she was more inclined to sing along with pop or rhythm and blues when she had the urge. Her father was the pastor at a church in her old hometown, and he was all kinds of abusive and overbearing in her youth. It was his influence that inspired her to turn her back on the religion he clearly didn't understand himself, but that didn't stop her from being the most loving and caring person I ever met. With how muffled and gargled her voice was while she warbled the barely legible lyrics, I could only make out the occasional word. Praise her and cherish her were among the few that I could understand, but others like curse his flock or cleanse the stain sent a shiver up my spine. With one slight shake of her arm, I managed to wake her up, but she was completely unaware of why I chose to pull her from her sleep. Huh? What? She said, still groggy. What's wrong, hon? You, uh... You were, like, crazy singing in your sleep. I didn't know what else to say. I suppose I hadn't thought that far ahead when I made the semi-conscious decision to wake her. I was... I'm sorry, Anne. Must have been a weird dream or something. She nodded off halfway through her words. But once she returned to her regularly scheduled disturbance-free slumber, I knocked back out too. The remainder of the night was uneventful as always, so I didn't even bring it up the following day. But when she began her guttural song a second time the following night, I got a little more concerned. Again, I prematurely yanked her from her sleep about halfway through her out-of-tune moaning, and once more she had nothing to offer. I don't know what to tell you, hon, she said the following morning when I brought up her new nightly tradition. Have you had any strange dreams or anything? I asked, unsure of what else to add. Maybe, I mean, I could be, but I don't remember anything. Did you, like, hear the song somewhere and can't get it out of your head or something? Babe, I don't even know what song you're talking about she said, sounding like she was losing her patience with my inquisition. I don't have anything stuck in my mind I'm aware of. I don't have any answers for you. I'm sorry, okay? No, I'm sorry. I I, I don't know. It's just... It's weird, is all. You're usually such a sound... Will you just drop it, for Christ's sake? It's not like I'm doing it on purpose. She went from mildly annoyed to downright pissed in the blink of an eye. I just stood there for a moment, feeling like I'd gotten yelled at by my parents rather than the woman I loved. I could feel my face getting warm with embarrassment while she just stared at me with her hands on her hips. I could see the muscles in her face twitching while she clenched her jaw, so I just raised my hands as though I stared down the barrel of a gun. I backed away and left the room. Not only was Jin normally such a peaceful sleeper, but she was generally such a calm and composed person. Even at times, I'd be losing my patience with the situation, she always handled them like a champ. 
I won't say we never had our fights, as any healthy couple does, but it would often take a lot more than a few concerned questions to cause her to lose her cool. As the days progressed, we made more casual conversation, and I didn't bring up her strange sleeping habits of late again. Before we laid down for the night, we made up in the uh, traditional manner, an act that left us both quite exhausted by the time it reached its conclusion. We fell asleep in each other's arms, which is something we didn't do as much as when we were younger. These things often get neglected after a solid decade of marriage, but my love for her never faltered. When the awful singing pulled me from my sleep for the third night in a row, Jin was no longer wrapped around me, but with her back flat against the sheets. I started to wake her again, but I thought it best to just let this thing run its course this time, even after it grew louder. Her back arched as the volume of her warbling increased, her shoulders and legs pressed to the mattress while her body contorted into something of an upside-down you. Praise her, oh, cherish her, smear the filth from her path, give her all you have to give lest we feel her wrath. Her voice had escalated to a sound of madness while the gargled moaning began to cause my stomach to churn. When I leaned over her body, deciding that I had to pull her out of this before she hurt herself, I screamed out in terror before I even realized it. Her eyes were wide open while she yelled her words, but they were no longer the deep hazel brown I'd looked into for the better part of thirteen years, but a shimmering, almost glowing emerald green. When I finally convinced my shriek to calm down, I grabbed my wife by the shoulder, shaking her almost violently to break her from this safe, but she wouldn't let up. My ears were ringing with how loud her wailing song had grown, and I could barely make out my own yelling voice as I attempted to wake her. Praise her, heal her, let her into your soul, feed her, nourish her, help her become whole. It was almost deafening, but no matter what I did, she wouldn't come out of it. Finally, after the noise was growing intolerable to bear, I slapped my hand against her face. In an instant, as her song transformed into a horrendous and anguished scream, she thrust her palms into my chest, sending me flying across the room into the wall. Before my spinning head left me unconscious below the large crack on my body and implanted into the drywall, I could see Jen sitting straight up in the bed, darting her head from side to side as if she was lost. When I came to, I was still on the floor with my head thumping and my back aching. It took considerable effort to get to my feet, but when I noticed my wife was gone, I tried to push my discomfort to the side. It was still dark outside, so I threw on every light switch in every room to find no trace of where she'd gone, only the front door wide open and the chilly night air breathing in through the opening. I could still feel the blood trickling down the back of my neck as I drove through the neighborhood in search of Jen. When I finally found her just walking down the sidewalk a good couple of miles from the house, I practically hopped the tires onto the curb in my enthusiasm to get her. Hey, hon, she said, seemingly in something of a daze when I ran up to her. Jen, what are you doing? Hmm? Oh, I... I'm not sure. 
She finally stopped walking when I grabbed her by the shoulder, standing in front of her to look her in the eyes. Though I was thrilled to see that he had reverted to their normal color scheme, I could tell her marvels hadn't quite returned yet. She was only wearing her sleep shorts and a tank top, and her skin felt as though it was freezing to my touch. You want to come back home with me? Huh? Yeah. Let's do that. I'm sleepy. She was still in a trance while I buckled her into the passenger seat and was still zoned out over the short ride back to the house. When we arrived, I helped her out of her seat, picked her up, and carried her back inside. You're so sweet, she said with a light smile and a cute giggle as I laid her back onto the bed, pulling the blanket back over her still frigid flesh. I traced my fingers across her cheek and through her dark, wavy hair while she curled up beneath the covers. Night-night, she said groggily, closing her eyes while she nuzzled her body against the warmth of the bed. Sleep tight. For the next hour or so, I just watched her sleep. She didn't move or make a sound as she drifted away, but I was so scared she would begin her wailing song again. After a while, once I felt confident she was out for the night, I went to the bathroom to wash the oozing wound on the back of my head. It was still quite tender, but I hoped the four ibuprofen I knocked back would do their magic. When I finally climbed back into bed, I was reminded that my back was still throbbing pretty good too, so I rolled down on my side to face my beautiful wife. As my eyes grew heavier, I attempted to push aside the stabbing pain in my chest that sorely needed answers to what had become of the once kind-hearted and carefree woman I adored. I knew I would likely have to seek out professional help for her soon, but not tonight. Jen was still asleep when I awoke the following morning. Even though I knew my body could use a good deal more rest, my back was aching and stiff. After I got done with my shower, I checked back in to find her still knocked out. Honestly, as worried as I was about what had been going on with her, I hoped that her being able to get an extended rest would do her a world of good. While I was downstairs researching online to see if I could find any answers to the strange events of late, I heard the ceiling creaking from movement on the second floor. I sort of froze up for a second as though my parents were about to walk in and catch me browsing porn on my laptop. Rather than Jen inadvertently finding me looking up things she seemed to have no memory of. Given her reaction when I pushed the topic on her last time, I didn't want to inadvertently fuel another fight, even if the makeup session was more than worthy of a few harsh words. Either way, I didn't want to make things worse than they already were. When the creaking on the floor above me fell silent again, I decided to just shut down the computer and go check on my wife. I couldn't know if she remembered her late night stroll or effortlessly tossing me across the bedroom for that matter, but I had to know if she was back to herself or not. I crept up the stairs like a burglar, hoping to keep their home invasion secret, feeling almost silly about the way I was acting. I wasn't entirely sure why I felt compared to be so cloak and dagger about the simple act of checking on my wife after a crazy night, but I continued on that course nonetheless. 
when I reached the cracked open door to the bedroom, I still kept my actions as quiet as possible. I softly nudged the door, momentarily worried about potentially squeaky hinges alerting the room's only occupant to her impending guest. When I got inside, I saw Jen sitting on the side of the bed, facing away from me. She was leaned over with her hands, tinkering with something that I couldn't make out. It wasn't until the jingling music began to softly hum from what she held that another sharp chill ran the length of my spine once more. As I moved in closer, she began to rock from side to side, swaying to the tune clinking from what sounded like some sort of music box. When she began to hum along with the sound of that same rhythm she'd been warbling in her sleep for the past few nights, I felt fingers and toes begin to tremble. Even with it only being the melody of that song, her tone-deaf sleeping mouth would wail into the night. I could hear those words bouncing around in the back of my mind. Praise her, my wife softly whispered. Cherish her, she continued while she hummed the haunting tune. Heal her, I muttered under my breath, barely aware I'd even spoke. Nourish her. Our voices spoke together as Jen turned to me, reaching her hand out to take mine. We left the house hand in hand with her still clutching the music box in the other. The hypnotic tune still carried on while we navigated the car through the neighborhood and out into the world beyond. I had no idea where we were headed, but my wife took care of the navigation. Left here, right there, stay on this road for 30 miles, and so on. Regardless of the fact that she'd not once turned the little brass key on the side of the simple wooden box since we left, the music carried on through the entirety of our journey. For hours, we darted from one highway to another, up and across back roads, only stopping to refuel. We didn't pull over to get anything to eat, as we had no hunger. We didn't pick up anything to drink at the gas station. We were not thirsty. We were on a quest. And that was all that mattered. It was some time after the sun had gone down that we finally reached our destination. I didn't recognize the old cemetery nor the wrought iron fence that surrounded it, but Jen seemed to know exactly where we were. She still moaned occasionally lyric to the haunting song while... We got out of the car, though I no longer felt the urge to sing along. My wife wore a beaming smile as we left the pathway behind to veer hand in hand in between and around a variety of both simple and elegant tombstones. The graveyard was massive, housing the dead from decades long passed away, as well as some from more recent years. As we continued on, I noticed the dates carved into the stones growing older and older, while the air we breathed tasted more stale and unnatural the longer we wandered onwards. I still felt almost mentally vacant when we finally came to a large tomb at the very end of the farthest reach of the cemetery. Though we'd passed what I thought to be the very last row of headstones some ten minutes before, this one stood alone, with only the warped and bent iron pegs of the fence behind it. Jen smiled back at me while she let my hand slip from hers as she pulled open the large door to the almost cavernous-looking tomb. 
As soon as she crossed over the threshold, torches on either side of the wide room ignited, lighting up the otherwise darkened area. I could feel my knees begin to weaken when I strolled in behind her, seeing nothing more than a large concrete casket in the very center of the room. There was nothing decorative inside, only chipped and aged concrete walls and floors. When she sent the music box onto the top of the casket, it sank about halfway in, causing thin grooves to bevel and spiral from around where it had sat in place, ending in a small circular hole in the center. When the lid of the music box opened with the music still reverberating against the sound walls, Jin reached inside, pulling out a long, jewel-encrusted dagger. She held it out to me, giving me a nod of permission to take it from her. She smiled enthusiastically, lifting herself onto the casket. Nourish her, she said as she lay back with her head touching the side of the music box, which had closed itself shut once more. I barely felt in control of my own body as I approached where she lay, holding the dagger above me with both hands, smiling back at the beautiful woman I loved with all my heart. Make her whole, I said readying myself to force the blade down into her chest, allowing her blood to flow freely onto the waiting mouth of the goddess beneath the concrete slab. The haunting tune still echoed from the box above my wife's head, resonating against the ancient walls surrounding us. Jennifer gave me another nod, signifying the time had come. We smiled warmly to one another as I thrust the dagger downwards with all my might and passion. pulled the car back into the driveway of the home that I shared with my wife. I was still very puzzled by the events that led us to somewhere on the other side of the country. I just sat, staring at the front door with the morning sun beaming down from above, feeling less than inspired to get out of the car. I'd already spent far too much time in over the past 24 hours. I could recall everything in vivid detail. The song that captured my mind and senses, the seemingly endless trip to the ancient boneyard, and even the glee I felt as I thrust the dagger downwards. I still couldn't figure out if it was my own will or something else that guided that blade from Jen and into the simple wooden box, but as soon as the impact silenced that hypnotic melody for good, both my wife and I snapped out of whatever trance had taken a hold of us. We were both shaken up by the whole experience, and I still can't believe that I came so close to impaling the woman I love, but I can only hope this whole ordeal is over now. When we finally got back into our home, cleaned ourselves up, and got some food on our empty stomachs, we did a lot of talking. It seemed that the music box had been delivered to the house about a week ago, with no return address on the package. Jin just assumed it was some sort of gift for one reason or another, but as soon as she cranked that key for the first time, it set its seeds in her mind. Though she wasn't fully aware of it, her sleeping mind could not escape the spell it weaved, a spell that took hold of me when I heard the song as well. Even after I silenced the damn thing, it took a minute for us to really take in what almost happened. 
When we did, we both beat and stomped at that box until it was little more than tiny gears and splinters of wood. As for the dagger, we tossed into a river we passed by on our return trip, but I couldn't tell you for the life of me where it was located. Truth be told, even though I remember those days quite clearly, I have no idea where we went that night. I don't know the route we took, the direction we went, or even what part of the country we were in, but everything else down to me holding that knife above my beloved wife's heart, I see every time I close my eyes. We have no clue as to who sent the music box to us, but neither of us will be so trusting of anonymous mail anymore. At this point, I think, even if we'd gotten an unsigned envelope with fifty grand inside, we'd toss that shit in the fireplace without a second thought. We may never know who or what was behind that mysterious package, nor the identity of the occupant in that tomb so many miles away, but I'm grateful for whatever guided my aim that night. Not only did I almost murder the woman I love, but I can't even imagine what we may have set loose upon the world if I'd hit my mark. <laughs>